The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's Wednesday, March the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I was joined today by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and his trusty deputy, Fia Kelly. Also joining us was Irish Times reporter Elaine Edwards, who covers digital rights and privacy issues for the Irish Times, to discuss this week's controversy over the use of Facebook users' personal data for political purposes by the UK company Cambridge Analytica. Elaine, you have a piece in today's Irish Times, which is really just sort of taking us through what I think many people will find is a rather complicated story about Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, and what was going on. Yes, I am. I tried to wrap together a few questions and answers around what's been going on here with the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook story. Um, I have to say, it's it's not actually an easy job to explain to people because there are huge technical details in it, which we probably don't want to go into. Um, but... Cambridge Analytica was a company established back in 2014 for the US midterm elections. Um, It's kind of an offshoot of the UK company Strategic Communication Laboratories um, and it was funded to the tune of about 15 billion by the um, Republican donor and hedge fund manager Robert Mercer. Um, Cambridge Analytica, um, basically using an academic called Alexander Cogan, uh, built uh, an app that was to be used with Facebook. It was a a third-party app, which for anybody who uses Facebook... um, well, no, you can install these apps to do things like play games, do quizzes and so on. And this app basically allowed people to take a personality quiz um, to talk about their personal opinions. And they, they use the term psychographic profiling. Um, it sounds, which already sounds a bit creepy exactly, to me. Exactly. Uh. It sounds quite creepy. Um, but people may be doing these Facebook quizzes and personality tests and so on. Sure. Ten years ago, even up to recently probably didn't think there was anything too creepy about them but in fact you know they're not doing them for your benefit they're doing them so so that they can be passed on the data from them can be passed on elsewhere so in this case Cambridge Analytica utilised this uh, psychographic profiling data on 270,000 people who did this test um, and, but it expanded out in fact to about 50 million users in the yeah, US Explain to me how, how that happens how that What works. actually happened is um, when people gave permission to for this app to access their Facebook account um, the permissions at the time that Facebook allowed meant that the app could also reach in and grab everybody's friends' data as well. So the multiplier of the 270,000... So the average person on Facebook has perhaps yeah, 100, yes, 150 exactly. friends. So they are all exactly. their data 
all the stuff that they like, all the stuff that they've looked at, you know, all the kind of their sort of their profiles. Are they exactly. married? Are they what age are they? Do they have yeah. children? Uh, maybe even some indication of what their political beliefs might be. Exactly. So yeah. um, Cambridge Analytica was able to use this very huge, huge data set to um, essentially to target um, political advertising during the US elections. Um, and there's still some debate about whether or not it influenced the Trump election in 2016. There's no proof definitively you know, that it did or it didn't. Um, but I mean, there is that certain creepy aspect to it that the advertising can be targeted in a very, very specific way um, in what's described as a micro-targeting way um, depending on what a person's political opinions might yeah, be. And, and it's worth it's worth saying that they claim that it did. And actually there's there's been some sting operations on some of them. There, there, there there were some clips, I think, on Channel 4 um, recently. Have a listen to this. When you think about the fact that Donald Trump lost the popular vote by mm. 3 million votes, but won the Electoral College vote, that's down to the data and the research. If you did your rallies in the right locations, mm. you moved more people out in those key swing states on Election Day. Mm. That's how he won the election. He ran by 40,000 votes in three states. So those were executives from Cambridge Analytica uh, in a cotton sting operation, I think, by Channel 4 and basically setting out their wares and claiming that part of their activities, you know, did have it, really did have an impact on the American election. It strikes me listening to that is you're listening to a sales pitch there. Um, and some people have suggested that that Cambridge Analytica oversold the the power of these psycho, psychographic you know, profiles and what, what they could do with them. But the other thing that strikes me is that uh, it has been pointed out that a lot of these techniques were used, for example, by the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012 as well. I mean, this is essentially what Facebook and other social media networks offer, isn't it? This is their business model. Absolutely. This is their proposition, whether it's a commercial organization. I mean, the Irish Times uses some of these, uh, mm-hmm. some of these tools sometimes, or whether it's a, a political party. I mean, yeah, that's true. And I mean, in this case, I think maybe the focus is obviously on Cambridge Analytica because this was the subject of reporting in The Guardian and The Observer over the weekend. And um, the story emerged from this whistleblower, Christopher Wiley, who did work with Cambridge Analytica. Um, I mean, they're certainly not the only company doing it. It's being done on a very broad brand scale globally. Um, But obviously the focus is on them and it's kind of a sexy story at the moment. Um, It has all the elements of a film script and so on in it. Um, But no, other companies don't get a free pass. Facebook certainly doesn't get a free pass here either. Um, And this, basically this did, Facebook did in this case what Facebook was designed to do. It was designed for precisely such sharing of data and for targeting. And in fact, back in 2011, uh, Facebook was audited here by the Data Protection Commissioner and the audit examined quite closely um, these third-party apps and how other parties were able to access people's friends' data and so on. And certain recommendations were made to Facebook about changing these practices. Um, the commissioner came back again in 2012 and asked for more tweaks, which still hadn't been done. There had been some improvements in Facebook's product at that point. Um, but Facebook, in fact, didn't close down this loophole, for want of a better expression. In fact, it isn't really a loophole because they knew it was there. They didn't actually shut it down to 20, till 2014. It was probably, it was an attractive proposition to, to their commercial clients, wasn't it? So, so yeah. they so they mm-hmm. dragged their heels. All of these companies, I think, at the moment are probably um, getting their privacy practices in order. They're um, going to have to present information to people in a much clearer format so that people can consent and give explicit consent. And in the cases of people's political uh, opinions, this would be considered sensitive information mm-hmm. and can be used in, in very, very pernicious sort of ways to target people. Um, they will not be able to do this. They will not be able to do this kind of targeting in the background that we're seeing now in terms of Cambridge Analytica and other uh, and others. I mean, this doesn't just apply to Facebook, by the way. It'll apply to Twitter, to Google. Um, 
who may also be using people's information for, you know, harvesting words here and there just in terms of sentiment analysis and sure. whatever And it's do. very much about sentiment as well, but, but mm. Pat, isn't it? One of the things that, that strikes me about this is that the definition of what is political is very broad. The kind of advertising or sometimes false news messages that are sent to people aren't necessarily about vote for X or vote for Y. They might be about something which makes an emotional appeal or that 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 research shows makes people angry in some kind of a way, which causes them then further down the line to, yeah, this to is, take a certain action. And this is one of the key things of the model that Cambridge says uh, it has proved to be so effective in uh, the American uh, election, certainly, and, and perhaps the, the Brexit referendum as well, that uh, it, it will deal in these in, 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 in emotions rather than facts and appeal to those. Uh, Racial those anxiety emotions. is a classic one. Yeah, so, in, in, in both, in both yeah, those So, for instance, if, you know, to, 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 to grossly oversimplify, if your Facebook data shows that you have liked stories about immigration or liked a comment about immigration, then it enables uh, that then what, 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 what the firm does is that it enables uh, the, the Trump campaign, say, to flood your timeline with stories about immigration or to produce uh, fake news about immigration, about Mexican crime waves and so forth. And then to match on your timeline, messages from the Trump campaign about being tough on immigration and so forth. Now, that's grossly oversimplified, but that essentially is uh, is is the way uh, is the way that it works. And while there are, you know, concerns and regulations about data sharing and data protection and that it's difficult to see how you can prevent the use of that uh, that that data in election campaigning. And that, in in some senses, is uh, all the panic about the threat to democracy of the so that's that's what it's about. It's about the effect of campaigning, and it's very difficult to see how that can be uh, prevented or, or be regulated. That actually is an interesting point because um, I think you'll find political parties actually are probably looking at this quite closely at the moment and looking at their their own back door to see what's kind of coming down the tracks for them because I think you've seen a trend over the last few years probably for political um, parties to start using. Um, social media tools and so on in their in their canvassing um in preparing for elections they'll be using platforms um like um nation builder and so on which would be is a platform that allows them to gather a lot of data about their constituents and um, they can use this literally on the doorsteps using an ipad for example they can gather an awful lot of personal information including information from say marked electoral registers they will know whether you voted in the last election they can uh, bring in tally information into that they can literally be on your doorstep and have your air code and have the location data of your house. They can uh, glean your personal opinions, whether you even tend to vote in the next election, uh, be processing information about whether you're a Labour voter, a Fianna Fáil voter, a Fianna Gael voter, whatever. Um, again, there's no real definition of what electoral activities are here. That's the thing. Mm. It's completely, so, it's completely exactly. unregulated. Yeah, so I mean, the difficulty, I suppose, for, for democracies is that the technology has moved ahead so quickly. Legislating is a slow and often contentious business, whereas the development of the technology moves ahead. Well, Cambridge like Analytica executives were pretty much openly laughing in some of this, these private recordings at the, the level of inquiry at, at the congressional investigations, for example, and seemed completely confident that they could just run rings around these inquisitors who just had no grasp of what the technology was, the sort of technology that you've just described. It's quite there. hard, though, from an Irish context, I think, to to do what is done in the US and the UK because you don't have an online electoral register like you would in Britain or America for example so it's quite hard to match up mm-hmm. data sets so I think that's one thing that would it, we'll get there eventually no doubt but it's one thing we're quite yeah. behind the curve on that 
particular aspect of it, which means kind of using the techniques that we've seen in both the States and the UK to a certain extent would be harder from an Irish context. But that's not to say that parties have been using the blunt tagging and location and all that. Mm. That's been done for some time, the, the kind of basic Facebook uh, targeting, but this level can, can kind of mass can, online advertising. Yeah, well, well, as well in to relation to that, can I, can I ask you? Because I was asking um, Declan, our producer, just be, just before we started recording, it occurred to me that these techniques, certainly at the level they're at now, are probably far more effective in something that's a sort of a two way race, be it a referendum or a presidential election, than in a complex multi seat um, parliamentary election. For example, you know, there were attempts to deploy, deploy these techniques in the in the German election and to some extent in the French one, and they seemed to have less impact. And that maybe, you know, maybe it works better in this kind of binary choice well, sort of situation. If a certain issue is identified with a certain candidate or cause, then it will be easier, like as you say, in, in our system where, you know, there's a lot of crossover between issues. So you can't, for example, identify, although it's not really relevant to the Irish context, you know, racial concerns or immigration concerns, say, if you, that is your concern here, then you are going to vote for candidate X or you're going to vote against proposal well, you can Y. See, you can see how these tools would be, could, be, could be very useful for either side in the upcoming referendum. Yes, and that is where with such a, such a, a binary choice it could be used. But Pat reflects in his piece this morning, um, the retained side don't believe that the tools are available to them to use it to the effect that it has been used to elsewhere. They say that you know this harvesting of information is kind of largely confined to people subscribing to their Facebook feeds by liking it, they get engagement that way, or people come onto their website and submitting their email address, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you cannot match them, like, they strictly speaking, the in the way that you can. Yeah, sure. You can have data, data, data sets to go, yeah. this person here lives in that neighbourhood there, therefore they have this income and people around them will have similar concerns that they do, so let's map them with a certain message and think that that doesn't exist yet here, but undoubtedly it will in the coming years. Yeah, but just like, to come back then, then Elaine, to what, what I mean, Pat's... I may be misinterpreting. He seems to be saying there's not a lot we can do about regulating the political element of this. Does it come back to regulating the, the social net, the social networks themselves and the digital companies themselves? Is is that the only way that we can get control over this in the way that we expect to have control over, you know, what's acceptable in media or what's acceptable in other forms of consumer product? Yes, and I think you are going to see a focus on that now. I think you're going to see regulators are going to be um, better resourced in terms of tackling this kind of thing. And hopefully there will be a determination to actually do it. But I don't think it's the role of one particular regulator. It can't be. It has to encompass it's the role of others. Di- different but related topic. Mm-hmm. I sat through the BAI's kind of briefing last week on the code of conduct for referendums and it's so totally out of date, you know. you know, We're just talking about radio and TV stations. We were like, mm-hmm. kind of, well, hang on a second. What if RT decide to have a Facebook Live debate on their feed? That's nothing to do with us. We can't regulate it. Like, you know, what if RT broadcasts a news coverage or a news package on their Twitter feed after the after the uh, moratorium? That's nothing to do with us. So, like, so, it's so out of date. The whole area around this is so behind the a, times. There's a, there's a bigger question. That is, in a way, a subset of a much bigger set of questions for societies and for governments about how to deal with the you know the power and the wealth and the reach of these companies which have grown up you know in historical terms overnight but now wield and have the potential to wield massive power and influence over countries they are richer than many companies they have more political clout than many governments and you know we see you know if you take the the question of how they are taxed which yeah. is very much in the news 
sure. today sure. Uh, with the European Commission launching its, uh, its, propo- its, its proposals in Brussels. You know, this will be an issue for governments and for transnational organisations like the EU to deal with um, over the coming decades. Because one of the things, I mean, Elaine, one of the things, listening to Fiek there, you know, he describes these antiquated ways of dealing with, you know, broadcasting legislation and stuff. When we look at things like what's called dark advertising in Facebook, what it means is that what was traditionally, because of the nature of the way media used to work, called the marketplace of, an idea, of ideas, essentially an open forum in which you could see what ad, ads people, mm-hmm. everybody could see the ads, everybody could see the debates. Now with everything targeted, it becomes atomized and you don't see what somebody else is getting in their feed. Two people in the same household may be getting different advertising target, targeted at yeah. them. And that that's, poses a kind of fundamental threat, possibly, to the way that democracy works. It, it does, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's um, kind of a pervasiveness of, you know, this kind of micro-targeting in terms of, you don't, as you say, you don't know who's being targeted in a particular household in a particular area. Um uh, you know, who's being targeted based on a particular, having expressed a political opinion, who's being targeted based on their sex, sexual orientation, for example. Um, you know, but back to what Pat was saying there about um, regulating at EU level. Um, I mean, again, this does come back to um, questions about mergers and acquisitions and so on, about how companies share data with each other as well. Um, again, on the Facebook front, they acquired WhatsApp. You'll find there are a few back in 2014 or thereabouts, mm. and in effect lied to the um, European Commission about what they could and couldn't do and would and wouldn't do with people's personal data. Um, they were subsequently fined 110 million or something there last year, having decided they were going to share all the WhatsApp data with their Facebook um, uh, Facebook customers and so on. 110 um, million is not a lot to Facebook, is not it? Not a lot to Facebook, probably no. Um, but again, um, you know, are we going to see an end to these kind of practices? Um, I think we're going to have to see an end to it. You know, it, it's just going to have to. It, it is going to have to be done. At, at, yeah. like, I think they have mm. said they might change their algorithms mm. in a certain extent to certain extent that your newsfeed is not just an echo chamber of what you've le- liked or clicked on before that you will see kind of differing views on. Yeah, but they're they're considering whether to change these things. Surely we've moved beyond Mm. them considering whether to change these things. I mean, some of these strategies remind me of the strategies of tobacco companies 20 or 30 years Mm. ago, that you drag your heels and drag your heels and you lobby and you lobby and every, you know, you, 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 you stand your ground in every ditch as you... Make yeah, your they're, they're dragged retreat, kicking yeah? and screaming into compliance, I think, really. I mean, it's a question mm. of whether um, companies are just going to do the bare minimum to just comply with the law, or are they going to actually um, move to best practice and actually respect their customers, respect people's mm. privacy, should, respect should, people's should, fundamental we should, rights? We shouldn't then assume that, it, you know, even if they are tamed, that their, their kind of potency as an electoral weapon is somewhat dim. Like, this is a huge element of it. But the other element of it is what they basically were set up for, which is to broadcast what you know, like, so, or what, what is happening. So if you look at the UK general election last year, the success of the Labour Party on social media was basically just reaching the audience rather in a, in a mass way, rather than this kind of geo-targeted way. So going, you know, on Snapchat or Twitter, or we have a rally here, therefore, bang, a crowd turns up. So let's not just kind of get into the assumption that, you know, if they're tamed here, that they will not be as electorally kind of potent or significant in the future. At their basis level, they are really effective in organising people to your cause. Like even a simple thing, like you'll see TDs, they always do, you know, here I am checking in at a cafe XY in constituency. There might be them and their dog sitting there, but they're suddenly telling everybody, oh, here I am, I'm great. So on a base level, they still are hugely significant, even strip away all the stuff that's causing controversy over the last few days. Well, and this is, I mean, I referred to the Obama campaign earlier, and you know, which again used you know many of these tools in 2008 and 2012, and was hailed to high heaven as being an example of grassroots, you know, democratic practice at its best in the digital age. Yes, but the sinister thing about the way that they appear to have been used um, during the Trump campaign and possibly during the, the Brexit campaign as well is uh, 
to serve as a conduit for fake news. It's, it's what it, what was it's how it was being used. What was yes, the, the actions yeah, of I this? I mean, it's and, like I mean, companies. you know, it's like the 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 the, the telephone, you know, uh, or the printed word. It is not a good or a bad thing in and of itself, but it can be used in ways which are damaging to society or damaging to the way our political process has been set up. And it has not been set up with rules to uh, that at, at this point anyway that can deal with this uh, deal with this phenomenon. I mean, for instance, to give one example: if the Irish Times carries an advertisement during an election campaign, it must say who the election uh, on, on whose behalf it has been bought and who is uh, effectively paying for that uh, paying for that, that that advertisement. If you see a poster. You know, a billboard poster are, are the posters that you see up on lampposts during elections or referendums. They must say who the election agent is, who they've been put up on behalf of. Whereas the advertising that you will see in your Facebook feed does not have that. And part of the part of the regulation of our system of elections, of electoral competition, relies on two things, really. One is spending limits. And the second is that you, 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 you own what you publish. And both of those things are completely undermined by, the, by online campaigning or can be got around by, undermi- and, uh, by, and, by, and, by online campaigning. And speaking campaign. of which, you know, there is an interesting initiative in the run-up to our referendum um, about yeah. seeking transparency or, or crowdsourcing transparency, yeah, I suppose. And this uh, is actually, re- it is a really interesting initiative. It's um, called the Transparent Referendum Initiative, which was established by a woman called Liz Carolyn, who's a transparency specialist, and a man called Craig Dwyer, who worked on the marriage referendum campaign. Um, and their idea is basically, they're doing this for free. It's, it's a voluntary initiative. Um, they're getting people to basically give them details of the ads they're being served on Facebook in the run-up to the referendum. So what they've done is they've asked people to volunteer to install a particular plug-in, say, on their browser to see what ads Facebook is serving them. So people will just submit those ads and say, there's my profile, these are the interests I have, these are the ads that are being served to me. So they've already made the data open and they're kind of publishing spreadsheets of the kind of data that's been served by, or the ads that are being served by, say, the Love Both campaign, by the uh, Repelia Coalition and so on. And people can go in and have a look for themselves. They can actually see who's been served what, what the ads look like. And they need about 500 people, I think, to sign up for it to make it effective, but they haven't got that many yet. Well, well I think, I think we should encourage our listeners, we should, everybody should, should sign up for that. It's so a transparent, it's transparent referendum initiative. People can find it on uh, uh, online. But uh, but it, it, it demonstrates the extent to which the regulations are just, you know, the, the, these I developments joke, have happened. Well, they, they just yeah. don't cover it. It's mm-hmm. not the fault of the regulations that were, that have been adopted until now, because they were never intended to deal with the, uh, with, you know, with this sort of campaigning. Uh, Facebook could tell us who is paying for the for political ads, but they choose not to. And that's where governments and regulators will have to look. You need they will need to make laws. If it is a thing that we believe that political advertisements, the source of political advertisements should be transparent Which we and do. our existing Which we laws suggest that we do, then those sort of laws will need to be applied to Facebook. But that's where you come up against the transnational and multinational nature of these companies because it is entirely possible we could ban that in Ireland. We could say that, you know, uh, Facebook in Ireland has to tell us where, uh, where the, the, who is paying for political ads 
but that could then be operated out of the US or the UK or, there, or wherever. There were actually some guidelines issued yesterday on micro-targeting at the EU level, actually. So again, that's quite timely um, by the European Data Protection Supervisor. Um, and I think you'll probably see something like that having to be mirrored here, um, you know, in terms of Seems giving people that, guidance. That, on that, that it's already starting to kick off finally in this and and, and, and not before time. Um, Elaine, thanks for coming in. Fiek uh, and Pat are going to stick with us as we discuss a few other political issues. Now, Fiak, you have a very interesting and extensive piece in today's newspaper about how the sort of the political gears are shifting up as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and the other parties, I suppose, uh, see a looming general election. Yeah, we kind of do like a, I suppose, once every six, seven months, uh, you know, look under the bonnet, check the parties, how they're getting on in terms of preparing for an election. And there's a definite sense since the new year in particular, um, because we had such the scare before Christmas, but you know how close we came to an election. There's a definite sense in Fianna Fáil in particular that things have stepped up a level, that preparations have, you know, taken on a, a bit more pace, uh, and that people definitely now see an election in the medium term. So when I say medium term, I don't mean by the summer the referendum takes precedence. I mean from September, October onwards. That is the window in which people are now envisaging the election taking place. I suppose people are preparing for that end. Fianna Fáil more so than Fine Gael, probably because Fianna Fáil can do so. They're not in government. They don't have to worry about a referendum. They don't have to worry about, you know, passing legislation. They don't have to worry about Brexit. They have more time in their hands. They have more time in their hands. As an opposition party, oh, we still have an exclusive mm. focus on this, but they definitely see it. And like, you know, people at the top of the party will go, oh, no, 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 we're not really. Don't, don't worry, you know, we're business is normal. But TDs definitely say, from stuff like, you know, asking for policies for a manifesto. Now, this may be normal at this stage in electoral cycle, but asking for policies for a manifesto, People asking headquarters for money are getting money where they previously didn't get any for researchers, for literature, etc. Candidates who are visiting people in headquarters are having people sit down for a cup of coffee inquiring as to their, you know, electoral well-being or, or, or otherwise are leaving with the impression nothing is explicitly said that, you know, this is coming quickly. So one person I know who's running uh, said they had a sit down and, you know, they were told, you know, you know, just just be sooner rather than later, maybe. You know, nothing is explicitly said, but there's a definite sense that things are gathering pace. And that's natural because, you know, we are reaching the end of this deal. This is the last budget of this deal. We're seeing the initial skirmishes of that budget in recent weeks. Um, And it's hard to see, given the ill-tempered exchanges we saw, in particular our strategic communications unit a couple of weeks ago, how this good faith lasts, how this thing can actually last. And with that in mind... Most people now think that the break will come sometime either on the budget or after the budget. That That's it. The because, deal will not be renewed. Because the budget itself, Pat, is this is, you know, in a way, the biggest potential budget of goodies or could be um, that we, we have seen for, for a very long time. This was always the, the case, wasn't it? That this particular budget, the 2019 budget, I suppose it is, um, that there'd be more on the table um, to offer. And I suppose that... With an election looming around the same time, that raises the question of promises promises made and promises kept. Yes. Um, the good news is that we're going to have our first mention in uh, in 2018 of the term fiscal space Hooray. in the politics podcast. So the, uh, the economic growth is such that it will throw up these resources for, uh, for the government to, uh, to expand its budget choices. They were reasonably tight. Last year, they'll be a lot looser this year. Um, and that, of course, is a political prize for, uh, for the government. And Fianna Fáil, and it is all, not just a political prize, but it's also a political tool for the government. Any government facing into an election wants to have as much to spend in its budget 
as it can because it believes with some justification that it may be rewarded by voters for uh, for so for so doing. Now that relationship, I think, is less straightforward than it was, but it is certainly one that is believed in by both Fianna Fáil and uh, and Fianna Gael that they may enhance their popularity at national and local level by announcing additional. So, spending. how does that play into the pre-budget negotiations, uh, and, and whether, including whether or not they might just fall yeah, apart? It makes them more difficult, and you're going to see once the referendum is out of the way. Fine Gael, you know, probably formally inviting Fianna Fáil to renew this deal. Let's talk about it before the summer recess. Fianna Fáil will say no. They'll come, we'll come back in September when the budget starts again. Again, Fine Gael That's might, renewing the deal post-budget. Or asking to renew it again for another mm. year or two. Nobody believes it will be renewed. Mm. This is about managing the decline of the government, if you like, who's going to be blamed for it. And then, you know, adding the fact in that Fianna Fáil will probably twice have said no at that stage, it will make the budget negotiations a lot testier. Because it'd be like, well, why are we talking about a budget if we can't agree an extension to the deal? You can see people of Finnegan saying that. Um, but because we will be looking into an election, an election in which the parties are going to have to say something different. So you can't go into an election having, a, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely correct in this, but you can't go into an agree, a budget having agreed on absolutely everything. So we'll have the, you know, Fianna Fáil services investment versus whatever Finnegan want to say. So you will see kind of, competing priorities within the budgetary process and people making louder noises than they have in the past because they know there's more money spent and they know the electorate are going to be listening to them again on the doors in the not-too-distant future. So whatever they say in a budget is going to be heard at the ballot box. So I think that's going to make the budget a lot trickier this year if it is to pass. And there is a possibility that it may not pass. There is a kind of debate going on in government at the moment about what you do with all this fiscal space. It's 3.2 at the moment. You subtract about 800 million away from that. With carryover, you take five hundred million off for the rainy day fund, and um, it'll you're looking at about maybe what just in around two of new money. But that will rise as the year goes on, as it all usually does. A lot of people, in particular in the Department of Finance, think that you shouldn't spend all that money. That it would be a virtue to say we're not going to overheat the economy. This is we do things differently now. Pat's point about you know spending money before an election is true. But there is a, a, a there is a view within certain quarters of the government not necessarily served perhaps by government buildings, that it is wrong to do so again. that The big argument in 2016 was we will wait until people have seen the effect of the budget in their pocket before going to the country. Totally backfired. Didn't and work. let us not forget that that, and this is where I question that relationship between spending a load of money in uh, on goodies in mm. a budget and electoral success, because if people don't see the effect of it mm. or people suspect the motives for it as happened in okay, 2016. Maybe, but very, last thought, very last thought on this from, from, from both of you. Listening to you there, it sounds to me like there's a very good chance of an election in somewhere between say, you know, September or October. But the other alternative is an election based, is that that election will be based upon Fine Gael not handing out all the goodies that were available and Fianna Fáil would seem in that case inevitably saying, but we were going to give the teachers their pay rise or we were going to cut which, down on the trolley in really hospitals curious. or whatever, we, we whatever mentioned it might the piece be. this morning if you look at Fianna Fáil on, uh, since the turn of the year they have reverted back I think to Fianna Fáil opposition of old building a coalition that they think will win them an election so where Fine Gael says you know this pay equalisation idea uh, okay we're talking about it we're into a process we'll deal with it eventually and Fianna Fáil going yes we will give it to you we want to give it to you this year we want to start this year where Fine Gael is saying you know we think we're doing enough for the housing market there's enough public money going to, we have to let the market catch up Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil saying we want more money for the, the housing market so there are differences opening up and you are seeing the kind of classic split between the two where, you know, you may see restraint on one side and 
Fianna Fáil going back to its traditions on the other. So and, Michal and, Martin's and, instincts. An approach which has served Fianna Fáil well electorally in the past. Yeah, and bear in mind, Michal Martin's instincts are social democratic spending on services. Like, it, he, want, he was aghast when he was in cabinet of what had to be done in 2010, 2009, 20, 2008, because that is not his instincts. His instincts are what he is going to do now. And I think that the other reason why you may see, like, if you if you work it out, like, confidence supply ends te- technically with this, does end with this budget. How it ends, we don't know. Does it end on the budget night? Does it end when the, the, all the bills are passed through the House in the, in the new year? Fianna Fáil aren't going to renew it. Their idea is that we'll sit there and wait till next spring and then we'll have an election. Why in God's green earth would Fine Gael sit there in the winter and at the mercy of a doll in which they're in an extreme minority when they're going to have health and housing crisis. So you could have a situation where Fine Gael go, you're not renewing that, let's go. You heard it here first. Hashtag 2018 general election. Thanks very much, Fia and Pat. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are very welcome to us. And you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 